Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. On the late afternoon of June 24, 1340, an English fleet of 140 ships raced toward the coast of Flanders. Born on the rising evening tide, it was making straight for a French armada. On the English ships, frantic final preparations for battle were being made. Longbowmen scrambled to the fighting castles erected at the bows, or climbed the rigging to reach the crow's nests perilously perched on mastheads. On the decks, men-at-arms donned helmets and made final adjustments to their armor. Sailors kept weather eyes on the wind and waves, but also made certain their weapons were close at hand. Priests circulated among the fighting men, dispensing blessings and murmuring last prayers. On his flagship, the Cog Thomas, King Edward III of England gazed at the fast-approaching enemy ships. They numbered at least 200 and were drawn up in three long lines that filled the tidal estuary of the Zvin and blocked the approaches to the port of Sluice. Among them were vessels far larger than anything in the English fleet, as well as sleek Genoese galleys, particularly deadly in close combat inshore. The day before, Edward's Flemish allies had implored him to avoid battle until they could join him with their own ships. But with the foe in sight, the king was in no mood to wait. After all, a victory would demonstrate God's grace in his war against France. As the fleets closed to contact, the archers on both sides began shooting, and the air filled with missiles. The English longbowmen quickly gained the upper hand. They could shoot faster, further, and more accurately than the crossbow-armed French. So heavy and deadly was the English arrow storm that, according to one chronicler, the French dared neither to look out nor to keep their heads up. Under the cover of the longbowmen, the English ships grappled the enemy vessels. The English men-at-arms charged onto the enemy's decks, and fierce hand-to-hand fighting broke out. Here, too, the English enjoyed a decisive superiority. Most of them were veterans of the Scottish campaigns, hardened by the victory of Halidon Hill and the northern Chevauchets. By contrast, their opponents were, according to the French Grand Chronique, poor fishermen and mariners not so skilled at arms as the English. They were cut down until the decks of the French ships were awash in blood and gore. Many Frenchmen tried to escape from the swords and arrows of the English by jumping overboard. Most who managed to reach land were clubbed to death by the Flemings, who had rushed down to the shore to watch the battle. Fighting went on until full night. When it finally ended, the French had suffered a crushing defeat. Their fleet was almost completely annihilated. Only the Genoese galleys, led by their commander, the pirate Barbanero, and a handful of other ships escaped to sea. 20,000 Frenchmen lost their lives. So many French dead were cast into the sea that it was said afterward that if the fish of Flanders could talk, they would speak French. Sluice was a great naval victory. The English would not see its like again until Trafalgar. Edward III himself had been in the thick of the fighting, suffering a bad wound to the thigh. He could, though, console himself that God had shown him in his cause favor. He could also hope that Sluice represented the turn of the tide against France. For the opening years of the Hundred Years' War had been full of frustration and disappointment for the English king. 
he had crossed the channel with an army for the first time in July 1338. His destination had not been Aquitaine, but Flanders. There, Edward hoped to find powerful allies to aid him against Philip VI. Flanders itself was a restive French county. Its wealthy and populous towns had rebelled again and again against the King of France. In addition, Flanders was bordered by numerous principalities that owed nominal fealty to the Holy Roman Empire. Edward's queen, Philippa of Hainaut, had close ties of kinship or friendship with many of the princes. Edward spent the rest of 1338 building alliances. He achieved a major breakthrough in September, when the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis of Bavaria, appointed him imperial vicar in Flanders and France. With this dignity, the English king could call upon the help of the local imperial princes. Equally importantly, Edward promised these princes massive subsidies if they would join him with their armies. Edward finally invaded France on October the 9th, 1339. His army numbered 15,000, of which only 4,500 were English. As they advanced south from Cambrai, the English and their allies ravaged the countryside. Clifford Rogers persuasively argues that the pillaging had a strategic purpose. It was meant to draw the French into a great battle that would decide the war. Philip VI of France was ready to meet the invasion. He had taken the Oriflamme, the royal war banner, from the Abbey of Saint-Denis and called up the French nobility to join him. His host numbered about 30,000 men. Yet at first, the French king refused to move from his strong position at the fortress of Peron. Though he could see the burning villages and even, according to one chronicler, feel wind-borne cinders falling on his head, Philip calculated that lack of supplies and the approach of winter would force the Anglo-Imperial army to retreat without the need for a battle. At last, the scale of the devastation compelled Philip to come out and fight. He sent a messenger to Edward, declaring that the French were willing to give battle on October 21st or 22nd. The two armies met near the village of La Flamangrie. Edward drew up the English troops in a formation like the one at Halidon Hill, with a center of dismounted men-at-arms flanked by wings of longbow archers. The imperial allies marveled at the novelty of the English array, but concluded it was good and profitable. Philip VI shared the imperial allies' conclusion. After studying the English army, he judged its position too strong to attack. According to the chronicler Jean Lebel, the French king's decision was made on the advice of his counselors, who pointed out the game was not on even terms, for if fortune turned against him so that he were defeated, he would lose his life and all his realm. But if it turned out that it was the others who were defeated, he, that is Philip, would not have conquered the realm of England, nor the lands or the possessions of the other lords of England. With a battle not in the offing, Edward III decided to retreat from France. The King of England planned to invade France again in 1340. He also had the opportunity to gain still more powerful allies. The great Flanders towns of Bruges, Ghent, and Ypres depended on English wool for the cloth-weaving industries that formed the basis of their prosperity. In addition, they were in rebellion against their nominal overlord, the Count of Flanders, who remained a loyal vassal of Philip of France. To legitimize the town's rebellion, and so entice them to join him with their formidable militia infantry, Edward III made a decision that would have enormous long-term consequences for the character, course, and duration of the Hundred Years' War. He decided to claim the throne of France. 
On January the 26th, 1340, in Ghent, he declared himself King of France and displayed a new coat of arms that showed the royal leopards of England quartered with the fleur-de-lis of France. Edward III had originally gone to war in order to free Aquitaine from French suzerainty and to end French interference in Scotland. He had recognized Philip of Valois as legitimate King of France when he had paid homage to him at Amiens in 1329. Even after his declaration at Ghent, he was probably not seriously intending to depose and replace Philip, but he had now dramatically raised the stakes of the war. As long as the war had been about just Aquitaine and Scotland, the English and French could reach compromise. Once the conflict became over who was rightful King of France, peace would only become possible if one side won an overwhelming victory. Edward III's decision was what made the war last a hundred years. The 1340 campaign began encouragingly for Edward III. Buoyed by his victory at Sluice and bolstered by his Flemish allies, he invaded France with not one but two armies. Robert of Artois, Philip VI's brother-in-law, an old archenemy, led one force comprised of Flemish militia and English archers to besiege Saint-Omer. Edward himself led the main army, composed of 1,300 English men-at-arms, 3,000 archers, 5,455 militiamen from Ghent, and 1,000 Flemish men-at-arms to besiege the town of Tournai. Edward was hoping to repeat the formula that had proved so successful against the Scots just seven years before. By beleaguering Tournai, he hoped to lure Philip VI into a decisive battle on English terms but the campaign rapidly unraveled. Robert of Artois proved to be a far better political schemer than military commander. His forces were routed by the French defenders of Saint-Omer. Then, when Philip arrived near Tournai with the French host, he once again declined to fight. The French king calculated that Edward needed a battle more than he did. And Philip was right. Edward had promised his allies massive subsidies. To afford them, he had stretched his financial resources to their limits. When Edward ran out of funds, his Flemish allies abandoned him and went home. With their army disbanding, the English were forced to lift the siege of Tournai. On September the 25th, 1340, Edward III and Philip VI met at Esplechin and agreed to a six-month truce. Edward returned to England a bitterly disappointed man. After the expiry of the truce, the seat of war shifted to Aquitaine, which saw bitter seesaw fighting between French armies and local forces led by the English seneschal, Sir Oliver Ingham. This situation of chronic warfare saw the appearance of a new menace that would afflict France and even much of Western Europe until the end of the Hundred Years' War, freebooting mercenaries, or routiers. The routiers were professional soldiers, both French and English, of no fixed allegiance, organizing themselves into companies, or route. In medieval French, they fought for whichever side was willing to pay them. When not in anyone's pay, they fought for themselves, pillaging and visiting violence on communities in French and English territories without discrimination. King Edward soon spied another opening to intervene in France. This opening was created by the fatal French problem of disunity. In April 1341, Duke John III of Brittany, one of Philip VI's most loyal vassals, died. To succeed him as Duke, Philip preferred Charles of Blois, John's nephew-in-law. But the dead Duke's half-brother, John de Montfort, 
claimed the duchy and beseeched Edward for support. Edward answered by sending an advance force of 1,600 men-at-arms and archers under one of his most trusted commanders, the Earl of Northampton. On September the 30th, 1342, near the town of Morlaix, Northampton's force was attacked by Charles of Blois, leading an army of French men-at-arms and Genoese mercenary crossbowmen. Northampton deployed his army in the English fashion with a center of dismounted men-at-arms and wings of longbowmen. The English then repulsed three successive French attacks. Morlaix was the first real battle of the Hundred Years' War. It also saw the successful debut in France of the English tactical system. A month after Morlaix, King Edward landed in Brittany with the main English army of 5,000 men. His campaign secured the south and west of the Breton Peninsula, including the important port of Brest, for the English and the Montfort faction but the rest of the duchy remained loyal to Charles of Blois. Moreover, Brittany was simply too distant from the main centres of French power for the English to achieve anything decisive there. Philip VI never thought it necessary to campaign in Brittany in person. The Breton War of Succession would rage on until 1364. In 1344, with the war grinding on inconclusively, Pope Clement VI decided to step in. He invited English and French emissaries to a peace conference at Avignon. But the only result of the conference was to expose how deep the two sides' differences had become. The English demanded recognition of their king's claim to the French throne. This claim could be surrendered only in exchange for vast new territories to be held in full sovereignty. In effect, the English were calling for the partition of France. For their part, the French would only accept English-held lands in France as feudal dependencies of their king. The talks quickly broke down. The collapse of the Avignon Peace Conference provoked Edward of England to make a supreme effort to win the war. In 1344, he convened Parliament to ask for more funds. Although the English had been paying heavy war taxes for years, Parliament agreed to a two-year grant of money but a special condition was imposed on the second year. The money could only be collected if the king crossed in person to France to bring an end to the war. As the representatives declared, they requested of our said lord the king, by unanimous assent and each person of the lords for himself, that he would make an end to this war, either by battle or by a suitable peace, if he could get one, and that once our lord the king should be ready and equipped to cross over to France in order to take whatever God might grant to him for the successful completion of his business, that he not abandon his expedition until he had brought things to a conclusion in one way or another not for letters, nor commands, nor requests of the Pope or anything else. The king gave his full assent to this request. In 1346, Edward was given his opportunity to cross over to France. The French curse of disunity was again at work. A dissident Norman nobleman named Godfrey d'Arcourt, lord of the strong castle of Saint-Sauveur-le-Vicomte in the Cotentin Peninsula, invited the English king to enter Normandy. Edward immediately grasped the strategic advantages offered by this move. Because of its proximity to England, Normandy offered an excellent base for Edward's army. In addition, unlike Brittany, Normandy was close to Paris and the French royal heartlands. Edward was also determined to fight an entirely different kind of campaign. His experiences in Flanders had shown him that allies were undependable and he would have to rely on his own forces. 
Using the money granted by Parliament, he mobilized no less than 15,000 men, 2,700 men-at-arms, 2,300 Welsh spearmen, 7,000 foot archers, and 3,000 mounted archers. This army was the largest ever fielded by England during the entire Hundred Years' War. On July 12, 1346, Edward and this army landed at St. Vaslahogue at the tip of the Cotentin Peninsula. But the most important change the King of England made was to his strategy. Clifford Rogers argues persuasively that from the beginning of the 1346 campaign, Edward intended to fight a decisive battle. In Flanders in 1339 and 1340, Philip had found it more advantageous not to fight. Edward, therefore, had to make it impossible for the King of France to refuse battle. Edward turned to the strategy he employed in Scotland, the Chevauchet. This time, the Chevauchet was executed on a far larger and more devastating scale. As the English army moved through Normandy in July, it flung out raiding parties to pillage and burn the countryside in a wide radius. The Welsh troops, the English chronicles report, marauded with particular abandon. The devastation continued when the army entered the domain of the French king in August. The overriding goal of the Chevauchet was to continually humiliate Philip VI for failing to defend his realm and thus goad him into action. Philip VI had immediately recognized the seriousness of the English invasion. He mobilized all available forces and recalled the substantial army he had sent to Aquitaine. According to Jean Froissart, whose chronicle is the most important source for this phase of the Hundred Years' War, Philip was greatly distressed at the devastation of his home territories. However, he would only give battle on his own terms and on ground of his own choosing. Edward refused to fight under such conditions. The result was a cat-and-mouse game along the Seine, with the English army marching along the river's south bank and the French host shadowing it from the north bank. On August 13th, the English army reached Poissy, dangerously close to Paris. Philip now sent a letter to Edward, challenging him to a battle in the open plains around the city. Edward declared that he was overjoyed by this news, but he was still unwilling to engage on French terms. He replied to Philip that if he wanted to fight, he could find the English army by following the Trail of Flames. Even as this response was being delivered, the English army was leaving Poissy. It raced northward, averaging 25 kilometers a day. As the English troops went, they continued to devastate a broad swath of land as they had done in Normandy and around Paris as part of their continuing effort to provoke the French king. Philip set off in pursuit. As the two armies approached the Somme River, he spotted a chance to trap the English. He ordered a strong detachment of elite troops to occupy the fort of Blanchetac. Edward and his army would then be blocked at the river to be caught and destroyed by the onrushing French host. But the English confounded this plan by defeating the troops holding Blanchetac and dashing across the fort. After crossing the Somme, the English army made its way to Crecy, some 14 kilometers from Blanchetac, and stopped. Many historians find this move deeply perplexing. Edward and his army could have got clean away from Philip and the French. The English ex-soldier Alfred Byrne, who wrote what is still one of the most popular military histories of the Hundred Years' War, states that the English army lingering at Crecy reminds one of a hunted fox stopping in the course of its flight to rob a henhouse. In fact, 
the decision to stop at Crecy was entirely consistent with King Edward's battle-seeking strategy. He had found the perfect battlefield. Crecy was located in the county of Ponthieu, which was an English-held enclave. The English army was therefore in friendly territory from which it could draw plentiful supplies. In the event of defeat, it could seek refuge in nearby strongholds. Furthermore, Edward knew that reinforcements were on the way. His Flemish allies and their tough militia infantry were on the march. Last, but certainly not least, the battlefield of Crecy was a strong defensive position. Among the English commanders who had chosen it was the Earl of Northampton, who had beaten the French at Morlaix and knew their tactics well. King Philip was finally ready to take up the gauntlet thrown down by Edward. The devastation of a large part of France, including the Ile de France itself, was humiliating and undermined his kingship. Moreover, his failure to bring the English to battle at the Seine and again at the Somme opened him up to charges of cowardice. Therefore, on August the 26th, 1346, as soon as he learned that Edward and the English forces were lingering at Crecy, he marched out at once at the head of the army. The French army of the Hundred Years' War has too often been described as a motley collection of chivalric warriors, fearless and skilled at arms, but individualistic, undisciplined, and with no conception of war other than the headlong charge on horseback. The great French medieval military historian Philippe Contamine has shown that the reality was rather different. During the 14th century, France's military system was evolving along roughly similar lines as England's. The traditional feudal host was no longer fit for purpose, and French military leaders were developing alternatives to it. Instead of relying on feudal obligations to raise their forces, the kings of France negotiated with their subjects to provide them with either well-trained and well-equipped troops or funds to support the war effort. Furthermore, even before the war with England, the principle had been established that the king would pay the soldiers who fought for him. With pay came royal inspections to ensure that troops were good quality as well as properly equipped and to maintain greater supervision over discipline. The French had even developed their own version of the English indenture, the lettre de retenue, as a contract negotiated by the king with an individual captain for the service of a unit of troops the lettre de retenue was largely identical to the indenture. However, four factors meant that the French did not undergo an English-style military revolution. First, the nobility dominated French society in every way. There was therefore a very deep investment, military but also political, social, and cultural, in the nobility's preferred way of fighting as heavily armed, heavily armored mounted combatants. Second, France's vast wealth and huge population meant that the kingdom could raise very large numbers of gendarmes, or men-at-arms. With the adoption of the mixed retinue, English armies had become balanced forces of men-at-arms and archers. By contrast, in French armies, the man-at-arms remained the predominant soldier for the entire Hundred Years' War. Third, for long stretches of the war, the French were on the defensive against English invasions. In such circumstances, the French kings needed troops quickly. They could not mobilize armies using time-consuming contracting methods. Instead, they resorted to calling up the fighting nobles in the theater of war and in surrounding regions. Fourth, until the 1340s, the French military system was highly effective. 
The French had defeated the formidable Flemish infantry at Kassel in 1328 and had largely held their own in the opening years of the Hundred Years' War. Unlike the English, who had suffered humiliating defeats at the hands of the Scots, the French at first felt little need to change the way they made war. French men-at-arms were supplemented by contingents of foot soldiers. A large and growing number of French cities and towns were required by the king to maintain infantry companies. By the middle of the 14th century, the standard weapon of the communal infantry was the crossbow, a powerful weapon that shot bolts able to penetrate heavy armor. However, the crossbow was inferior to the longbow in range, rate of fire, and accuracy. The best infantrymen were not French at all, but mercenary Italian crossbowmen, particularly from Genoa. It is a persistent and durable myth that the French did not use the longbow. Even at the outset of the Hundred Years' War, a handful of communal infantry were armed with the longbow. After the English had demonstrated the devastating power of the weapon, the French kings made determined efforts to create a corps of longbowmen. These efforts failed for two reasons. First, French society lacked an equivalent to the yeoman, a small holding commoner with enough wealth to enjoy the leisure time needed for regular training with the bow. Thus, unlike the English, the French could never develop a deep reservoir of archers. And second, the French nobility might have worried that putting such a powerful weapon in the hands of the lower classes would threaten their social and political dominance. On the late afternoon of August 26, 1346, the French royal army approached the English at Crecy. Philip VI sent scouts to reconnoiter the enemy position. What the scouts saw was not encouraging. The English army was arrayed on top of a long ridge at the end of a valley called the Vallée de Clerc. Dismounted men-at-arms were lined up in three battles. Flanking them were long wings of archers. The English right flank rested on the village of Crecy, its left on the village of Wadicourt. The French scouts probably did not get close enough to see that the English archers had dug pits about a foot wide and a foot deep in front of their lines as an additional defense against cavalry. After the scouts returned with their report, many of the French commanders urged Philip VI to delay the battle until the next day arguing that much of their army was still rushing to the battlefield. The king, however, would have none of it. The troops on hand already outnumbered the English by at least two to one, and considerably more in terms of men-at-arms. He therefore ordered an immediate attack. The first French troops to engage was a strong force of Genoese mercenary crossbowmen. As soon as the Italians were in range, the English longbowmen shot volleys of arrows into them. Proud professionals, the Genoese shot back, but the exchange of missiles quickly went against them. Not only were their crossbows badly outclassed in range, accuracy, and above all rate of fire by the longbows, but the Genoese, not anticipating a battle that day, had left behind in the French baggage train their pavises, the large body shields on which they depended for protection while reloading. In the words of Froissart, the English archers poured out their arrows on the Genoese so thickly and evenly that they fell like snow. When they felt those arrows piercing their arms, their heads, their faces, the Genoese, who had never met such archers before, were thrown into confusion. Many cut their bowstrings and some threw down their crossbows. They began to fall back. 
What happened next was the most notorious incident of the Battle of Crecy. Seeing the Genoese archers retreating, the mounted men-at-arms of the leading French division became furious at what they thought was the Italians' cowardice and charged through them, riding down any who could not scramble out of the way. This callous action, however, disorganized the French formation, which was then deluged by the English arrow storm. Men-at-arms were felled by arrows that punched through weak points of their mail and plate armor, helmet visors, and joint and limb coverings. But the main victims were the French war horses. Large, virtually unmissable targets for the longbowmen, and unprotected by metal armor, they were killed and wounded in droves. Jean Lebel noted that some would not go forwards, others leapt into the air as if maddened, others balked and bucked horribly, others turned their rumps towards the enemy regardless of their masters. The terrible effects of the arrows on the horses threw the charge into hopeless confusion. Nevertheless, enough Frenchmen reached the English men-at-arms to engage in hand-to-hand combat. After a furious bout of fighting, the French retreated, leaving heaps of fallen men and horses in front of the English battle line. More men and horses lay scattered on the slopes of the ridge and in the valley. For hours, the French attacked the English army. In all, they made at least 15 charges. These charges settled into a grim pattern. The Valet de Clerc funneled the French horsemen into the devastating crossfire of the English longbowmen. Men and horses were brought down all the way up the slopes of the Crecy Ridge. With their numbers badly depleted, their formation hopelessly disorganized, and their impetus completely spent, the French then smashed themselves against the unyielding wall of English men-at-arms. The flower of French chivalry was cut down. Perhaps the most notable death was that of John, King of Bohemia, a stalwart ally of Philip of France. Though old and blind, John led the second French attack, his horse's bridles tied to two of his men. He was found dead with his household knights all around him. But many more French men-at-arms suffered a terrible death by suffocation. The English chronicler, Geoffrey Le Baker, noted that when they attacked the well-armed English, they were cut down with swords and spears, and many were crushed to death without a mark upon them in the middle of the French army because the press was so great. At last, long after sunset, at the third quarter of the night, according to Le Baker, the French army lost heart and retreated. King Philip had fought bravely, having two horses killed under him and being wounded in the face by an arrow. He had to be dragged away from the field by his bodyguards. Yet his generalship had been deplorable. Almost as soon as the battle began, he lost control of his army. The French attacks were launched piecemeal, spontaneously, and without organization or preparation. All had been cavalry charges, save for one assault on foot, led by a veteran commander who had fought against the English in Brittany. By contrast, Edward III had commanded with consummate skill. He had chosen an ideal battlefield and had deployed his army perfectly. He had managed his troops carefully so that they were ready to meet each French attack. The Battle of Crecy made the reputation of another great English soldier. Edward, the 16-year-old Prince of Wales, led the English vanguard. According to Jean Froissart, at one point, the prince's division was so hard-pressed that Sir Thomas Norwich went back to the king to ask for reinforcements. King Edward famously replied, Sir Thomas, go back to him and those who sent you, and tell them from me that they are not to send to me for help, whatever happens, 
so long as my son is alive. Tell them that my orders are that they are to let the boy win his spurs, for I wish the day to be his, if God so wills it, and that he and his companions shall have the honor of it. The boy did win his spurs. Dubbed the Black Prince during the Tudor period, the younger Edward would become the finest commander on either side of the Hundred Years' War.